Let's close in prayer. Right, that's going to confuse anybody listening on this recording. Um, welcome, everybody. It's a wonderful pleasure to have you all here. Nice to see some new faces. Um, and I'm not even sure I've introduced myself to you guys, but I hope I have a chance to afterwards. Welcome. It's great to see you here. Uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then we will get started. And I'll talk about what we're going to spend the next, well, hour and a bit, and then the next few weeks after that doing. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for all your kindness to us. We thank you that you are the sovereign Lord of history and that you're holding all things in the palm of your hand, that all the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to you. You know our days because they're numbered and they're written in your book before one of them came to be. You know how many hairs there are on our heads and not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your will. And so with that in mind, we embark upon the astonishingly overwhelming task, really, of understanding the unfolding of history under your sovereign power, which is to say the study of eschatology. And so we ask you to enlighten us, give us clarity, uh, wisdom, give us thoughtfulness, help us to understand new things and to make sense of older and more familiar things in new ways. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so when I say... That was an enthusiastic amen from over there. When I say eschatology, now some of you have heard me talk about eschatology a little bit before and sort of know what the answer to this question isn't, and maybe even what it is. But when I say eschatology, what might naturally come to your minds? We're going to study eschatology. What sort of phrases or ideas or themes would come to your minds most naturally? Come on, don't be shy. Last things. Very good. Last things like what? Sorry? The study of the human body. Right. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps I should rephrase the question. Um, <laughs> it's fine. I, I, I used to say, um, when I was a younger pastor, I used to say, there are no stupid questions. <laughs> Because I was desperately trying to encourage people to contribute. Um, but then I realized that, you know, there are some really stupid questions. That wasn't one of them, actually. That was fine. Well, that was an answer. That was... Yeah, yeah that's true. I, I, yeah, good, good point. So I landed myself in it then. So eschatology has customarily been associated in the popular Christian mind with the study of the last things. Uh, particularly the four last things, heaven, hell, death, and judgment but also with other matters connected with our long-term distant future, or maybe, excuse me a sec, um, in the view of some people, our imminent future. And the reason is very simple. Um, it's to do with the word, eschatology. Anybody know the, the, the two Greek words that eschatology comes from? These are Greek students. And Pastor Neil may not answer, neither may Pastor Shaw. Where are Greek students? Yeah, Sophia. Very good. Eschatos and logos. And eschatos means, yeah, last or final or the ending or something of that kind. And then logos, as you know, means word um, or sometimes in some context teaching. So teaching about the last things, eschatology. So theology is teaching about theos, God. Christology, teaching about Christos, Christ. Eschatology is teaching about the last things. And it's true that eschatology involves trying to understand the last things. But, and you could all hear a but coming, couldn't you? Um, it is not just about the last things. 
And the reason, if you think about it, even if you, even if you didn't really know anything else other than what I just told you, um, you'd kind of be able to figure out that the things that happen at a particular point in history are going to be connected to things that have happened before that time in history, correct? In order to understand what's happening now, we probably need to know something about what happened yesterday. In order to understand what was happening in the days of Jesus, we really need to understand something about what was happening in the hundreds of years before Jesus and the thousands of years before Jesus. And really, next time, we should put out extra chairs. Um, and so I've got so much to talk through this evening that I thought I can't wait for four or five minutes while we put the chairs out. But um, uh, welcome, uh, those of you who just arrived. It's great to have you with us. Uh, in general terms, in order to understand particular events, particularly events of biblical significance, we need to understand what has led to them. None of us tries to understand the ministry of Jesus just by reading the Gospels, do we? Gulp. Because some of you, you might be inclined to do that. And it wouldn't be a bad place to start, but it would be a mistake to think that you can just understand about Jesus by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke and John wouldn't it? Well, you've got to read the whole of the biblical history that leads up to that point, and then probably you should read some of the stuff that was written afterwards, yes? So in the same way, if we are to understand the unfolding of any future events at all, we need to go right back to the beginning and try and trace the unfolding of human history, and indeed the history of the whole world, as scripture describes it. Eschatology, therefore, is about everything. Eschatology is, I'd like to think of it actually as the doctrine of history, particularly that part of history that hasn't happened yet. But in order to understand that part of history, we need to understand that part of history. So the, the text I'd like to read for us this evening will take us right back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Note in passing, of course, that what this does, approaching eschatology in this way, liberates us from the tedious necessity of endless conversations about the rapture and um, all those crazy beasts in the book of Revelation and um, the man of lawlessness and the great apostasy and so on and so forth. Uh, As it happens, I was chewing over some of those things today because I was preparing some material for some preaching on 2 Thessalonians. But it will be a terrible mistake just to try and begin by figuring out what the rapture is. Quick hint, it's not. (laughs) None of you are going to be raptured, promise, (laughs) genuinely. But that's one of the the species of misunderstandings that arises if you don't do what we're going to do now and begin with the very first verse of the Bible. So let me just remind you what it says. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And I just want you to think about the implications of that for a second. Is there anything in existence at all that God didn't create? Okay, that's an easy question, right? Everything comes from him, yes? Every physical object, every activity, uh, every person, every 
all the things you see around you, mountains and rocks and hills and, mount- and uh, oceans and animals and people, everything comes from him. So what that means is that everything reveals God somehow. You're familiar with this from Psalm 19. You remember Psalm 19. Who can, don't look in your Bibles. Who can tell me the first verse of Psalm 19, just from memory? Yeah, I know you can. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. No, come back. We'll need you later for some of the more difficult questions. Um, (laughs) uh, Mrs. Claghorn. Right, very good. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And what that means is that all the things that make God glorious are declared by the heavens. And the skies proclaim the work of his hands. There's a kind of parallelism there. What the psalmist is saying is that everything that exists shows forth God's being in some wonderful way. God is this infinite, overflowing explosion of power and wisdom and goodness and truth and love and joy and justice and rockiness and mountainousness and strong right-handedness and light shining in the darknessness. All these things are in God first and foremost. And when God made the world, really what he's doing is he's just indulging himself. Okay, no, that's, that's not right. He's not just indulging himself. But he's like the ultimate artist. And again, this is an illustration. One or two of you have heard me use this before, but it's such an important thing to grasp in thinking about the world that we live in, because we're going to get to eschatology in a second, I promise. Um, God is like an artist. And, you know, a great artist puts himself or herself into their work. Yes, you can tell something about the mood and the place in time and the, in some cases, the political or ideological views of an artist by what they produce, correct? They put themselves into it. That's why lots of people really love art. Um, I've got a wonderful little card in my study, which was sent to me by one of the ladies in the church, and the original's Uh, painted by another lady in the church and it's just really really beautiful and you put yourself into those things yes when you're when you're making them and and you look at it and you feel it's what make one of the things that makes art so fulfilling and enriching so the lord god is like that he's an artist he's poured himself into the world this is not this is not unique to me my two favorite theologians well two two of my three favorite theologians um herman barvink my third favourite, quotes my second favourite, John Calvin, writing as follows, quote, There is not an atom of the world in which one cannot discern at least some bright sparks of his glory. Every single thing is brimful of God, is a phrase Bavink uses. Um, reflecting Psalm 19... The pure of heart see God everywhere, Barvink says. And then he, says, he quotes Calvin again. He says, no, just, I want you to think about this. Don't leave the room in horror and outrage about what I'm going to say. This is Calvin, not me. 
He says, and I quote, I confess, of course, that it can be said reverently, provided it proceeds from a reverent mind, that, ready? Nature is God. Don't, don't storm out in a half. That's not some mid-20th century New Agey pantheist or some medieval mystic. That's John Calvin. Okay? Solid John. The guy who's straight down the line, very trustworthy, fine exegete, fine theologian, fine pastor. He says, you can, you can say it with a reverent mind. Nature is God. And I need you to tell me how. Of all the things I've told you, I've given you the raw ingredients. How is it that nature, quote-unquote, is God? Right, out of the mouth of babes and infants and nine-year-olds. How old are you, Jude? Nine, there we are. Thank you. Yeah, he's put himself into it. And here's the crucial thing. So closely tied is the character of God to the things that he's made, that you can say, this is him. Now, Calvin, actually in the part that's not quoted by Bavink, sort of backtracks from that a tiny bit. He's, he's, he says, you know, you, you probably shouldn't talk like this too much because you could confuse people, which is why I'm not just sort of, I don't write this on my, well, maybe I will write it on the door of my study just to provoke people, but, but you wouldn't want to say it in an unqualified way, would you? But can you see what Calvin is saying? Calvin, sometimes we think of him as the kind of solid, steady theologian, and he is. But he is also, um, he's a theological adventurer in the sense that he'll see the implications of what Scripture says. So, so, so it is that nature, the created world, reveals God. So now I have a very simple question for you. Is time created? Yes, thank you. Very good. Time is created. Time is the... It's one of the aspects of the fabric of stuff by which the created world exists. God is not in time. That's a mistake to think God is in time. God is um, eternal, which is to say not that he is, just lasts for a very long time. It's rather to say that he's outside of time in a in the kind of way that Van Gogh is outside of the Mona Lisa, the picture. Can you see? Here's this two-dimensional creation of an artist. Is it, was it was Van Gogh? No, it wasn't. Who was it? Da Vinci, that's it. I, I knew it was somebody. That was it. Who? Sort out my art history, darling. Go on. Sunflowers. So who, who painted the Mona Lisa? Oh, yeah, yeah. So when you want to hire somebody to teach a history of art course, you know where not to come. And it's funny how when you get up here, everything sort of seems to make sense. when it, And then suddenly you realize, I got my east and west tangled up last Wednesday. I don't think I'm sleeping. Uh, Sunday. <laughs> Pastor Neil, please come and take over. All right. Anyway, but that was just to keep you awake, to make sure you're paying attention. <laughs> he said desperately. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah, P- painting. The artist is outside the painting. Yeah, <laughs> stick to things you know about Jeffers. Um, 
and can see the painting. And there's nothing in the painting that came from anywhere else but from in the artist. Uh, Romans 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So the whole created order is this reflection, I can't get this out of my head now, sorry, of the reflection of the being and glory and goodness and character of God. Including time. And therefore, all of the development and progress of these created things through time. God didn't just make Sam Robinson and then think, my goodness, what a fine specimen. Let's just, let's just, he didn't think that at all. No, he did think exactly that. He didn't just think that and then think, well, we're just going to leave that there. No, no. The living God is still in control, as much in control of all the things that Sam Robinson is now doing, the blink of his eyes just then, the breath and the smile and, and the, the hair and the decision that he made to put those boots on this evening, and all, all these things that Sam is doing are also part of the picture. If you wanted to go deep and metaphysical, we could. Um, in technical terms, the creation is not a three-dimensional thing at all. The created order is a four-dimensional spatio-temporal manifold. There we are. You're welcome. You can have that one for nothing. A bit of philosophical theology on a Wednesday evening. It's three spatial dimensions and one time dimension. And a manifold is actually the technical term that physicists use to describe it. And I know that because I used to be one. It's a... It's kind of hard to picture a four-dimensional thing, isn't it? What, what you can do is you can picture a three-dimensional spatio-temporal universe. You can picture it as a picture, which is two dimensions, that changes, and then you stack the, pic- the next picture a second later in front of it, and then the picture after that in front of that, and the picture after a second after that in front of that. And so you end up with this sort of two-dimensional picture developing through the third time dimension. Can you sort of picture that in your head? Some people can do that. Some people can't picture things like that in their heads. I could try and draw it on the board here. I don't know why somebody put that there. Is that like tempting me or something? But Like that. Exactly, like those flip books. Like, you, like old-fashioned fa- old cartoon. You could make a cartoon from them. Now, if you, what you imagine is, instead of flipping through the book, the the thickness of the book is the time dimension. Yeah? So there you've got a two-dimensional thing which is developing through that third time dimension. So now all you have to do is imagine another dimension. Oh, sorry. It's quite difficult to do. Um, physicists don't even try to do this. They just do it with math, and it's easier that way, <laughs> they, they tell me. Um, but the reason for saying this is to say that God stands outside of the whole of this four-dimensional universe as it develops from creation forwards in time forever. The the universe has a beginning. There's a time t equals zero. There's no end to it. So it's like a a very long four-dimensional sausage that goes on forever in the time direction. Are you with me? And some of you can picture this. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and I'm going to move on in a second, and it'll be much better. And and what that means is, if it's true, and this is, this is what I've been 
aiming for for the last 20 minutes, apart from the artist illustration, which I'll never live down. If it's true that God reveals himself in physical three-dimensional things, rocks and stars and stones and uh, volcanoes and moths and dry rot, according to the book of Hosea, and every other thing that exists, and people particularly, we'll come to that in a second, maybe half an hour, then it's also true that he reveals himself in the histories of those things. It's not just the fact of a tree is there reveals God. It is what that tree does through time reveals God. Are you with me? So we have to try and think about the created order, in, I think, in a, in a quite new way. It's not just that there's this blank canvas called space and time and God is dropping things into it and he says, oh, that reveals me and that reveals me. No, 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 that's not how it works at all. The whole shebang is God pouring forth this infinite kind of Niagara of self-disclosure. Just, he is outside of time dumping infinite amounts of himself all the time into space and time to reveal himself. Are you with me? So your history and the history of the person sitting next to you, their lifetimes, are a revelation of God. God is showing something about himself in what he's doing in and through you. He's showing something about himself in what he's doing in and through um, nations and the growth and death and decay and birth from new acorns of trees. He's certainly, obviously, revealing himself through the history of his people. Oh, now you think of it like that. It's obvious, isn't it? God isn't just revealed in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, etc. God is revealed in the progress of history that comprises their lives, but not just their lives. That theirs are the lives who are, which are interpreted for us in the scriptures. God is revealed in other things as well. Everybody else's lives, everybody else's history, the history of the church, the history of the universe is a revelation of God. So before we get to thinking about anything, anything to do with eschatology, the first set of questions we could ask ourselves is, okay, well, given what we know from the Bible about God, what do we expect history to be like? If history is going to reveal God. Are you with me? We're going to come to that question in a second. I want to pause, though, first. And if we've all gone over that terrible misplaced illustration where I got the artist wrong, there you are. I've all forgotten. Let me pause. Any questions or comments so far? Any, is what I'm saying making sense to you? All, all this is in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because there is the doctrine of creation. All things are from him. And obviously, impliedly, the doctrine of providence. He is sustaining all things and revealing himself in the way he sustains them. Let me pause there a second. Questions, comments? So, I'm, I have a question. So, yeah. I mean, I get that you can, you know, just like a great painting, you can determine based on an artist's, you know, 
brush strokes and stuff you felt it's a fake or if it's really that artist. Right, and, right, right. And so you can see that. And I followed you all the way up and I, I'm, I'm just curious. And God's outside of all this. So he sees it all at once. Correct. He right? sees it all at once. Yeah, yes. It's like a, I mean, a, a big painting. He's, it's done. Very good. And he's just watching it. I yeah. Mean, he can see it. Yeah. Observe it. But it's infinite. So how does he see the end of it? Yeah, there is no end to it. Right. If there's but, no end, then how do you see the whole thing? You don't have a defined thing. Yeah, you, you, you'd have to have an infinite mind, otherwise you wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> you with me? Yeah. Now, what, the way you've just articulated that is a very good articulation of the doctrine of divine eternality, or divine eternity. God is outside of the picture, and he sees the whole thing. And that means that our tomorrow is as present to him as our today and our yesterday. He can tell the difference. Like, he can tell the difference between Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. It's not that God is confused. Some philosophical theologians have said, well, if that's true, it means that God doesn't understand what time is because it's all just like one big blurge to him. That's nonsense. God can tell the difference between the top right and the bottom left of the painting, right? God can tell the difference between our yesterday, today, and tomorrow. whilst at the same time he can see them all. So God stands outside this thing. And and what God is doing, the whole of human history is for him, to glorify him. And so there he is in spaceless, immaterial eternity, surveying this infinitely complex four-dimensional landscape Infinite because it goes on forever into the future. It's, it's, it's without boundary in the time dimension. And it's actually expanding pretty fast in the space dimensions as well. It's a pretty big universe. He's surveying this, and, and his job is to display his perfections in it. That's all he's doing. I say that's all he's doing. That's quite a lot for him to do. But everything is about him. Everything is about him. It's all simply, quote-unquote, uh, a display of the latent, we call them attributes of God. And the, the, everything that makes God God, all his characteristics, and we sort of list them in theological textbooks like these behind me. And, but we never exhaust what God is like. All that God is, is being poured out into this magnificent universe. And it's revealing what he's like, because it's all from him. And so, if we knew what he's like, we could figure out what the shape of history, not exactly everything that's going to happen, but we could figure out the sorts of things we might expect to happen. Are you with me? So, for example, let's give you some... Pause on one second. I want to stop, because there might be some other questions. Mr. Loki's asked a question, but any other questions so far? Daniel. Yes. Yeah, so how, how do you get to the point where we think there's an end of time? The answer is, first, because um, the doctrine of the resurrection doesn't entail the ending of this space-time universe. It's, in a sense, it's a discontinuity in our history. There are real events that lie ahead of us. The second thing is, we shouldn't think of the future state, whether heaven, the intermediate state, or 
the eternal state, glory, we shouldn't think of that as timeless. And the reason is because timelessness is a divine attribute. Only God is without temporal succession. And therefore, if there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and a resurrection, which there is, it's going to have to be a time-bound one. So that what we, we see these little momentary slices of this four-dimensional universe. We see it one moment at a time. We see a little bit of it, this room right now, and we see that instant of it. And you can remember 10 seconds ago, and if you shout really loud, you can be heard over there. So we've got some kind of influence over a bit more of the universe, but God sees every corner of it. And the reason it exists into the future, in, in a sense, is to give us a place to be into the future. We, we could never step outside that. That would be breaking the creator-creature boundary and becoming, literally, God. And that, obviously, you can see why that's problematic. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, Aaron. From online. Yeah, how, how's, how, how, is, how is Jesus, who is both God, and therefore outside of time, and man, and therefore in time, how does, how does that work? Thanks. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the doctrine of the incarnation is one of the harder doctrines to um, articulate. And really, that's really the answer in a sense. What the incarnation, that is to say the God-becoming-man-ness of Jesus is is the, th- the second person of the Trinity coming to exist in a new way. So that now he, the Son, dwells both in eternity and also in time. He is both God and human. He is both not material and material. Um, so how you articulate that theologically and, and philosophically and biblically, is, is quite complex. And in effect, that highlights the, the goal of history, if you think about it. Here's God outside of space and time, and here's all space and time and creation, this infinitely complex, glorious thing. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was some way of uniting the two? They, they're united in creation in that it's God who is bringing them forth. But couldn't they be united in some other way? And the answer is yes. There is a, a man who has, so to speak, bridged the gap between them. Now, there's much more to say on that, but that, yeah, I, I want to at least acknowledge the question, and it's a complex one, but yeah, thank you. So let's just pursue this thought again, because I'm conscious of time and I want to get through, and we'll get to some practical things, practical in eschatological terms quite soon. Created things and created actions and the history of the universe all reveal God's character. So how big would you expect the universe to be? Well, huge, right? And it's kind of obvious you'd expect. Why why did God not create a universe the size of a matchbox that lasted for 20 minutes? (laughs) Well, he's got too much to say. He's got, there's too much of him to be contained. 
if, you, if he's going to try and reveal himself in a created thing, space and time. What about um, uh, other attributes that he has? Um, something like his power. Given that God's powerful, what kinds of things would you expect the universe to contain? And I don't mean like, you know, uh, headmistresses who are a bit strict. You might expect it to contain black holes and supernovas and uh, little rinky-dinky planets like ours that have um, explosions like the explosion from Mount Krakatoa in the 19th century. Am I getting that wrong as well? 1930-something? I'm going to state my hat on it, but it was about 1830-something, I think. You'd expect it to have big things in it to reveal God's uh, magnificence and power and strength. You'd also expect to see other things. And what's intriguing, and we'll just go back to Genesis for a second. Um, no, actually, no, I'll come there in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, think of God, God's moral attributes. Think of what we know about uh, God's character in the sense of, is he kind? Is he good? Is he merciful? Um, is he loving? And then zoom in on people, in particular, his people, and, and the history that he's most concerned with, it seems. If you think about it, there's all this vast of space about which scripture says almost nothing at all and then there's this tiny little planet which is orbiting one fairly puny little star in one corner of a fairly average galaxy um, about which God has to say a huge amount about one tiny little family <laughs> the, whose father lived uh, a couple of thousand years BC Abraham and some of his ancestors and some of his descendants and as you look at this family, what, how would you expect God to reveal himself in the things that he brought about for that family? Well, he's kind. So would you not expect him to give evidence of his kindness in the way that he cared for them and treated them? He's merciful, specifically. So you'd expect, and because we know from a couple of chapters after what we just read, that um, this creation goes off the rails because of human sin quite fast. We'll come to that in a later session. But you'd expect God to be just in dealing with sin and wickedness, but also you'd expect him to be kind and gracious and merciful. And what do you find as you... Look through the pages of Scripture. Just think of the book of Genesis. Think of all the dumb things that people do. Think of the hero of the narrative, really, Joseph. You know, the snotty-nosed teenager who gets on his brother's nerves and really, quite understandably, you know, I had this dream, right? And um, you're all stars and I'm a star and all your stars are bound down to my stars. Yes, thank you, Joseph. You know, and think of all the trials that the Lord put him through. And then think of how the Lord, what does it say a number of times in Genesis? The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. And by the end of Genesis, you've gone through the pit, literally and metaphorically, multiple times. 
But there they are. The family is reunited. God's promise to multiply them has been starting to be fulfilled. They're not yet in the place where they ought to be, and they don't yet have most of the fulfillment of all the other promises that God has made to Abraham. But God has been kind to them. And what if you just took that one, one aspect of God's kindness, God's grace to sinful and rebellious people, and you said, okay, what, if we ran the tape for a couple of thousand years, what would we expect God to do? As he sees sin and wickedness multiplying and spreading across the face of the earth, how do we expect him to respond to that? Do you think we'd expect him just to walk away? Or would we expect him to do something else? And of course you know what the answer is. You could either start with the history and infer the character of God. God must be extremely kind to put up with the people of Israel during the days of the judges, don't you think? (laughs) Just think, and the people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. What, again? You you amaze me. (laughs) You could start with the history and infer the character of God. Or you could say, no, let's pretend we didn't know the history and all that we knew is that God is good and God is kind. And let's suppose you allow yourself a couple of other Bible verses. Um, He um, executes vengeance to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but shows steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments, something like that. what What are you going to expect his people's experience to be over time. You're going to expect, as the generations pass, that there are times where the sin reaches the level where God acts in judgment against them. But you're going to expect that over time, there'll be this accumulation of God's acts of grace and kindness as he pardons and forgives and finds ways of dealing with their sin. you with me? So... If you knew those things about God, it wouldn't surprise you to discover that you know, the church has gone from, I don't know, a few hundred optimistically in the days of the apostles to, depending on how generous you want to be, hundreds of millions or one and a bit billion, somewhere in that range, followers of Christ today, in the space of 80 generations. Just think about that. 80 generations, you've gone from less than 1,000 um, disheartened, demoralized disciples to countless hundreds of millions of disciples of Jesus, all of whom, like us, are hell deserving sinners. And what's actually happened is that God, in space and time, has been just revealing his character as a gracious and merciful and patient and kind God throughout those generations. And now you run into one of the most precious aspects of practical eschatology where I I point out that your life is a kind of microcosm of the history of the universe you you begin or history of the universe as scripture describes it you begin you know small and insignificant and there's one man and one woman in Genesis, and there's you know, eight people after the flood, and there's one man, Abraham, and his wife in Genesis 12. You know, God is in the habit of beginning small, and you grow 
And do you not grow through trials? Yeah? Externally imposed hardships? You know, I don't, Joseph probably deserved a good hiding once or twice, but I'm not sure he deserved everything he got. Externally imposed unjust hardships? Have you ever experienced anything like that? I, I know for a fact that we've all experienced the consequences of our own foolishness and sinfulness. Now, there have been many times where we really did get in the neck what we kind of deserved. And is it not the case that just as you see the people of God developing down through the generations and foolishly doing the same dumb thing again and again and again and again, but yet God somehow continues to show mercy to them. He finds a way of showing mercy to them. Isn't it the case that God has done that with you? And you can... Actually, this is a great source of encouragement, like in practical ways. Let me give you an example. Um, let's suppose, and I was talking about this on a podcast recently, so it's fresh in my mind and from another couple of conversations. Let's suppose that you're finding your work a little overwhelming at the moment. Maybe you're an administrator at a church that's got a new pastor and they're, they're still not as organized getting their information to you in time for Sunday as they really ought to be. For example, let's just imagine that that was your job. Well, you're starting a new job next week. Again, you're going to get your land there in the factory or wherever it is you're managing and it's going to be... Um, this is going to be overwhelming in lots of different ways. New, new routine, new responsibilities. And the temptation is to think that something's gone wrong. And it might be that it has. It might be that you've made some mistakes. It might be that the situation is exposing some moral failings in you, some ways you need to grow up. And But... It, Things have not gone wrong in the sense that God can't fix them. This is what we say to our kids, isn't it? If you've got a child, and a child is disobedient, and you need to discipline them, and parents don't like doing this, but they have to do it. The Bible says we have to do it. You want to find a way of saying, yes, that was wrong, but that doesn't mean that it's gone wrong. Yeah, that The plan of a great parent for their child includes remedies for when their children sin so that their children can learn from the experience so it works out better in the future. Is that right? That's, that's basically how good parental discipline works. And that's exactly what the Lord does with us and it's what he'll do with you. Guarantee it. I can almost, no, I can guarantee. You will not find every day of the next half many decades the Lord gives you a breeze, whether you're a mum or a dad or a in doing a job you've done for the last 30 years and you're going to do for the next 25 years, there will be difficult days. And, you, and there will be days when you feel like, oh, this is, this is too difficult, I'm, I've, I'm overwhelmed. And I want to say, no, you, it might be difficult. It's not too difficult. If you view it in this way, the Lord is sovereignly shaping you through the consequences of your own sin, through unjust, adverse circumstances in the same way that he's always done with his people corporately down through the generations. And all of that reflects his character as a merciful God. And then you notice some other things. God is not just the God of the Muslims, the the unitary being, Allah. There is in God relational distinction. Yes? Uh, God is one. 
and God is three. Father, Son, and Spirit. And I forget the contexts in which we were talking about this recently, but several times um, in various teaching contexts at All Saints in the last few weeks, we've hit obliquely on this issue of God's triune character being revealed in the things that he's made. And let's think of some obvious examples of that. Um, God loves to communicate. God, the Father, speaks the Word, who is the Son. And how is the Word of the Son carried forth? Well, it's on the breath, which is the Spirit. Breath and Spirit are the same word in Greek and Hebrew. So God, just, in, just God in himself, this divine, eternal whirlwind of Godness is a speaker breathing out words. Father, spiriting Son. Father, speaker, breathing out words. So what kind of history is God going to create if he wants to reveal his own character? Well, isn't it... Isn't it going to be the case that some of the most wonderful and enriching experiences that we have as people within this world that God is sovereign over come from relationships and talking with other people? Isn't that the case? I mean, I know that you fell in love with him partly because of his good looks, but it was also his great conversation, wasn't it? (laughs) Of course it was. Sure. Sure. (laughs) But you you recognise the phenomenon, don't you? The things that are really enriching are so often connected with conversation, words. I remember uh, the first time I was away from uh, England for any extended period of time, I was about 20, I went to Japan for three and a half months. And the experience changed my life because it was really miserable most of the time. Because it was just me. Japan is quite a lonely place in the sense it's, it's hard, it's easy to be lonely there. It's not a very sociable place, especially for a gaijin foreigner like me. Um, the people were lovely, but they were all super busy and none of them spoke English and I didn't speak any Japanese. Well, they did speak a bit of English. I didn't speak any Japanese. So there it was. And it changed my life because it made me realize what's really, for the first time I experienced what's really important in life by not having it. Um, but more than that, words and speech and communion in relationship are so important that it wouldn't be at all surprising to us if the the glories of God's work in the world were supposed to be told in words. You think about it for a second. There's no abstract principle that dictates that we should have a Bible written in words. The gospel of Christ should be communicable in words. Why is it not a sensation? Why is it not a picture? Why is it not just uh, uh, a ritual action? There are lots of things that we do, like we shake hands, we look at objects, um, we have feelings. Why, Why would God communicate in words? The answer is because words are really significant. It's how the created order mirrors the richness of the triune life of God, where God 
relates Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. They're not sitting there in silence in a room kind of gazing at the ceiling. They are a uh, richly textured relational communion, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so now you think about you know, your life. I was talking with a, a couple of people, again, very recently, um, about the sort of priorities that they wanted to put in place for their lives. And I wanted simply to encourage them to write them down. What things are really important to you? You know, young married couple. You, you know, well, let's, let's suppose you decided we're not just going to do this marriage thing on autopilot or by instinct. But what we're actually going to do is we're going to try and think what's really significant. And then we're going to write those things down and we're going to look at them together and we think, no, cross some of these things off. That doesn't look so good. Maybe we should add some other things on. And we're going to decide how we're going to live. If you don't have extended periods of time for conversation, if you're a husband or a wife, with with your spouse, then rewrite the list of what you're going to do because it's wrong. Because you're designed to be the overflow of all that God is, and God is Father, Son, and Spirit in relational communion, talking to each other. And the, the words that they're speaking are one of the persons. The words are personal in the absolute sense. It's not just ideas floating around. It, that The person of the Son is identified with the words that are spoken. So significant are words to us. So... If, if, if you're not sure what to do in married life, and might be married for 10 or 20-something years, you could always change. You could always write some stuff and say, what we're going to do for this year is we're going to set time aside and just talk with each other. And many couples never do that. And they're impoverished as a result. Um, more fundamentally even than that, I think, no, actually, not more fundamentally, as fundamentally as that. The Father and the Son and the Spirit give themselves to each other. This is, a, um, this is touching on an aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, uh, we confess it in our creeds. The Son is begotten of the Father. Remember that? The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So if I was going to do a diagram, I could do that actually. Hold on. It would look like that. And you see, the arrow is supposed to be the same. I don't know why I did the third one differently. I, I never get consistent with my arrowheads. So the Father begets the Son, and the Son and the Spirit... The, the, the Father and the Son... Uh, uh, the, the spirit proceeds from the father and the son so what this means is that the the persons give themselves to each other and you might think well the spirit doesn't seem to be doing any giving the spirit's doing all the receiving here yeah but think about what the spirit actually does in time and space and history the spirit's calling is to do what to call attention to the son the spirit it really lives to shine the spotlight on the ministry of the Son. It's, a, um, it's the distinctive role of the Spirit to say, what, it's nothing to do with me, it's all about Jesus. Um, so 
what that means is embedded right in the being of God himself is self-giving. Self-giving. The sun, just think about the sun for a second. Where does the sun get his being from? He gets everything that he is from the Father. And what he gets from the Father is everything that the Father is apart from fatherhoodness. Which mean, which is to say, in technical terms, they're one substance. It's not the Father has this stuff and he gives a bit to the Son. It's like I've got a donut and I want to break a bit off and give some to Loyal. That would be wrong because then you've got one bit and I've got a different bit and they're not the same substance. What's actually happening is all that the Father is and has, he's giving to the Son. And all that the Son is, he's receiving from his Father. And then the Son's like, well, that's wonderful, thank you. And then he gives all that he is to the Spirit And the Spirit gets his being from the Father and the Son. Which is why the disciples are supposed to be reassured in John's Gospel, in the um, Upper Room Discourse, when Jesus says, I'm going to be going, but it's all right, I'm going to send another counsellor to you, the Spirit of Truth. They're not supposed to say, oh, that's not good, we want to have you. They're supposed to think, that's that's going to be better. And Jesus says, yeah, you'll do even greater things than I've done because of the Spirit who's been sent to you. So now just think what that means. Embedded in the heart of what God is, is self-giving. So when you get to the climax of this story that God is telling through history, how is the climactic movement going to be shaped? What is it that God is going to do? Picking up the comment that was sent in um, from the Zoomers. What is it that God's going to do to bring to a climax and to its fulfillment all of the things that have gone before. I know what he's going to do. He's going to give himself. How can a man give himself? Oh yeah, he can give himself by laying down his life for his bride. So the the idea of God the Son taking human flesh becoming obedient even to the death of the cross, Philippians 2. The idea of God, the Son, doing that and doing it for others, laying down his life, is embedded actually in the nature of God himself. It's built into the fabric of the triune God. And think of one final thing. Probably not final, because I've got a few other things, but maybe next time. Um, as God pours himself out in history does God run out of gas right are we talking about like a big pitcher of um, fizzy lemonade on a summer's day and you know when you have a birthday party and you've got the kids around and you and you've got this big jug and but you you can never have a jug big enough. Have you ever had that situation that you go around and you've done three quarters of the kids and then you have to go back and fill the pitcher up with, le- with more lemonade because it's not enough? Because every time you've been pouring some stuff out, um, you've been depleting the supply. So there's less left. Now, the temptation is to implicitly think of God like that. So that, you know, by the time God gets to Genesis chapter 11 or 12, he's like, pretty, man, this has been exhausting so far. All these people and all they can do is tear each other limb from limb most of the time. Um, and then you're Abraham and 
well, that starts okay, but it doesn't go brilliantly. And, you know, Isaac, Jacob, and oh, my word, by the time you get to the middle of Genesis 30-something, it's going pretty terribly again. Um, and all the time, the temptations, if you don't, if you're thinking in a, a crass materialist kind of way, you'll think God is pouring himself out into this creation and becoming less as he does so. No. God never becomes less by pouring himself out into the created world. He is unchanging and infinitely rich and deep and glorious and wonderful in all the attributes that he has. One of his attributes is infiniteness. He never runs out of anything. And so as he pours himself into the creation, the creation gets fuller and bigger and more glorious, but God never runs out of juice. So what you've got to imagine is, go back to the um, summer's afternoon and the jug of lemonade, It's not that you pour the lemonade and it runs out and now you've got four glasses left that you can't fill up. You've got one big glass and one infinite pitcher. And as you pour from God, the pitcher, into the glass, the glass has to expand and keeps expanding and becoming bigger through time and space and more wonderful and more glorious with more and more different manifestations of all of the moral perfections of God, his kindness and his grace and his goodness and his mercy and everything else that makes him good and kind. So as you extend that through time, if you had to predict what's going to happen to the size of the community of people who know and love this God? What's what's your basic first guess going to be? Are you going to say, well, you know, they're always going to be a struggling minority, you know, battling on in there? No, you might think there'll be times like that because there have been times like that in the past. And there might be places where the church is a struggling embattled minority. But if you are if allowed just to peek behind the curtain momentarily and just survey the future, and you, you're allowed to make a prediction about what's going to happen to the, not just the size, but the, the wisdom, the maturity, the, the mutual love, every other grace that the church shows, what's going to happen to those things? Would you not expect... Um, a glorious, hard-fought accumulation and growth of all those things. And by the time you've let this tape run for a few hundred thousand years and we're out of the early church and we're into the you know, middle period of the church sometime in 300,000 years' time, um, do you think it's possible that, that some people will be able to resist the grace and kindness of God? Yeah, possible. Some, but... Don't you think it's more a priori plausible to think of this project of the growth of the kingdom of Christ as growing and accelerating in its extent and it's the depth of the effects of the goodness and kindness and mercy of God on people. That creates the theological backdrop 
expectation for the church, the growth of the church through history. Where we're going to end up is being able to make some comments with some confidence about the general shape of the church's life now and the church's future. But I think you can see a couple of things. First, that's only one small part of what we're talking about at this stage. But second, that's not just a point of figuring out the numbers at the end. It's built in to the character of God himself to have a... We should have an expectation of a plan for human history which gets better, more wonderful, impacts more and more people, uh, more and more deeply, more and more richly, saves more and more broken sinners from more and more catastrophic situations and puts them into more and more well-grounded, mature, stable, wise foundations as time progresses. Because what time is, is the revelation of God's character. And he's that kind of a God. He's a God of unending mercy and goodness and grace and kindness. Let me pause there. And we'll just step back a half a second. Let me summarize what I've tried to say as briefly as I can. Everything is a revelation of God. That includes time and history as well as things, objects in the created world. So that means that eschatology, understood as a doctrine of history, the unfolding of time, is directly connected to what we know about God. And because God is infinite, as well as everything else he is, we expect the ongoing accumulation with lots of ups and downs and pain here and torment there and so on, but over the global history of the next however many hundreds of thousands of years, we expect the accumulation of the signs of God's goodness in the created world around us, and particularly in the thing about which he cares more than anything else, which is where we're going to begin next time, the, the people whom he's created to be reconciled with himself. Pause there, because we've got a few minutes, so we can pick up some questions if you want to pursue any of those thoughts anymore. Any comments or questions? Maybe clarification or... Uh, yeah, Mrs. Fraser. Right. Yeah, why he fed the 5,000. He didn't, it, we don't have a, an account of the feeding of the 24. <laughs> or the 17. <laughs> you know, the, the, the first obvious thing about 5,000 is it's like, 5,000? It's just insane. It's just, just leaving aside the significance of the numbers and so on. It's just, yeah. Most of us have rarely been in a crowd of 5,000. You know. So, yes. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, Mr. Barnes, go ahead. Actually, be within time. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is commonly held among people who write about it with any degree of seriousness. But just to restate the question in case you didn't hear it, is it commonly held that the eternal state, glory, the life of the resurrection will be in time? The answer is yes. Um, the, the problems come in some of the more, um, I want to say, slightly careless popularizations of that teaching. And there are few areas of Christian teaching that get more careless popularizations than eschatology. <laughs> um, eschatology understood as, in the etymological sense, of the last things. You will find more terrible Christian novels about the end times than about anything else, right? There are some, there are some fairly bad movies about the life of Jesus, but let me tell you, there are some terrible books about the book of Revelation and what it's supposed to mean and doesn't mean, right? So in, what that means is you quite often hear people talking about, well, in eternity, or, and I don't want to say, whoa, don't talk about, when you, if you mean heaven, say heaven. If you mean glory, say glory. If you mean the resurrection, say the resurrection. But don't just use the word eternity as a sort of careless way of talking about that. Really, people mean in the, in the future, I think. And, but, yeah, but it's absolutely, I don't know of anybody who would say that we become timeless because that would be to become like God which would not be remotely Christian yeah thank you yeah Evelyn Right, and right. How he sort of takes that so that in the end everything will be glorified. Like, I just struggle right. with how to think about that. Yes. So, you, could you ask the question in this way then? Um, given all that we've said about God revealing himself in creation, how could he ever have dreamed up the idea of the fall and the human sin? Yeah. <laughs> and so, one way of asking that is to say, well, I, I can't think of any way, any justification for it. Think of all the misery, for a start, and pain that's been brought about by human sin, both to the people themselves who sin, all of us, we bring about all kinds of misery for ourselves, but what people do to each other. The countless long years of suffering that people have endured because of human sin, right? I can't think of any justification for that. You could start that way around, or you could start from the other direction. You could say, well, there must be a justification. So it must be the case that when God decided or decreed, is a technical term, that the, that the fall would happen and that all the other sins that would be connected with that throughout human history would happen, it must be the case that he thought that was a price worth paying. And in fact, I don't want to say even more than that. If you're God, right, um, 
you have an infinite mind, correct? So you could, hypothetically, think of all of the possible universes that you could possibly create. Yeah, if it were possible to think of all the infinite range of possible universes that could possibly exist, you could think of them all. So there's a, there's a hypothetical universe that's run exactly the same as this one up to this point, but you've got um, uh, cranberry rather than whatever juice is in front of you right there. And then you just stand up and say banana and sit down, and then everything carries on the same. There's another universe like that, a hypothetical universe. God's thought of that one. He's also thought of a universe in which um, Tate's wearing a blue shirt, not a red one. He's also thought of universes which are radically different, really radically different. Universes in which there's no sin. If it's possible to conceive such a universe, God can conceive it, yes? And God, being infinitely wise and infinitely good, chose this universe. So that must mean that this is the best that God could have come up with. Because otherwise, God, being infinitely wise and infinitely good, chose something which is either not wise and not, or not good. Well, that, that would be crackers. He wouldn't do that. He'd have to... If he's wise, he'll choose what's best. And if he's good, it will good in the sense of maximally glorifying to him. So that must mean that this universe in which we're living... The history that it contains and embodies, all the things that have ever happened to you and to everybody else, is the very best that God could possibly have come up with if what he was trying to do was to glorify himself, which it is. What, what would make it worthwhile to have all this sin in the world, all this pain? It, it must be the case that to glorify his son through his death on the cross, is so important to him that it's worth this price tag, such that any other price tag would devalue that one most glorious thing. And I, I don't know how that makes you think about your life. Honestly, I, I don't know. There have been times where it's left me baffled. There have been times where it's actually been a comfort to me personally to think that... The, it's not, it's not just that if something painful has happened, um, God's in control. That's a comfort. It is a comfort to know that God's in control. He's not just let his hands off the wheel and, oh, he plowed into the, uh, the median in the center of the road and now the car's wrecked. That's not. It's that God is still in control and this is absolutely the best journey that the infinitely good and wise God could possibly have taken the universe on. And now I want you to think back over the whole of your life and all the things for some of you that have happened that have been really quite awkward <laughs> or painful or actually traumatic or frankly horrible and you'd never wish them on anybody. I can think of a few things. I've been mercifully spared from lots of things that I know other people have suffered terribly. God thinks that's the very best possible life and the very best possible universe and history in which to place it for the purposes of glorifying himself in the person of his son. I don't think there's any other conclusion you can draw from that. So your question, it starts out as, a, as an objection to this idea of God orchestrating things in this way, and it ends up being 
a deepening of the purpose that God has in orchestrating things this way. You know, we, 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 take, we take the gloves off to do theological hardball with the living God. And he's like, bring it on. <laughs> and the, it was my, I've shown you my second and third favorite theologians. My, my favorite theologian, who's your greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who articulated that most plainly that I've read. This, this is the best of all conceivable in the mind of God universes. It gives a kind of, it has the potential to give a, a, a depth of purpose to all of our experiences. And this is actually the, the final point I wanted to end with, and we've got two and a half minutes, so I'll, I'll end with this. In some peculiar way, God manages to be sovereign whilst giving you what at least feels like free will. Let's not get into that right now. We can do it later. But experientially, subjective first-person experience is that you get to make choices. You could go home, um, kick the cat. You could go home, pour your wife a nice glass of wine and sit down and talk for an hour. You could do either of those things or many others besides. Don't kick the cat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, but now you know that you are living in this picture, this four-dimensional spatio-temporal manifold that God has designed specifically for the purpose of glorifying himself maximally and in which he's revealing his glory maximally. And though sin exists in it, it will be better at that moment when you could kick the cat or you could pour your wife a glass of wine. It will be better at that moment if you poured her a glass of wine or had a cup of tea or something. Yeah? My wife's nodding like this. Um, because you, it's not that your free, quote-unquote, will uh, supervenes over God's. It's that God is giving you that capacity in and through which you are now called to participate in what he's doing. So you get to reveal the glory and wonder of God at that moment and every other moment. When you haul yourself out of bed at 17 minutes past four to get to work on time for your first day in the office in your new job. Um, When you stay behind for two hours when you really want to be going washing the baseball, but you've got to do the work because the customer said it needs the work done and so you're going to do the job because you want to be the best um, uh, service provider you can. When you're doing your nursing, when you're being a mum, when you're getting up in the middle of the night to change diapers, whatever it is, those things are not just you being a, a godly person. They are that. They are you cutting with the grain of the plan that God has had from before the foundation of the world and outside of the foundation of the world to maximally reveal himself in all of his glory and wonder more wonderfully than he could have done in any other way. And all, even all the pain and frustration that you experience while doing that is it's good, quote-unquote, not in itself but in God's purposes, will be used for those good purposes. You with me? Okay. Uh, I have one quick question. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so basically, based on what I've heard you say, at the end of Genesis 1-1, yeah. it was set. Yes. The whole thing, 
Correct. And and we're before group, but we're confined, but in God's perspective, at the end of Genesis one one. Before Genesis one one, it's all in his mind in eternity. Yes, but exactly right. Yes. God is if we could step out of space and time into the mind of God, we would see everything. Capital E, capital T. It's all there. And all of it, including the history that we are going to be um, exploring and learning about under the heading of eschatology, all of it fundamentally is revealing him. And that sets a certain orientation to everything. And that's what I've been trying to set out this evening. We're out of time. Um, I'm grateful to you for your attention. Um, uh, I'm conscious also that um, some of this stuff probably feels a little bit um, complex. And some of it, it might have sounded like you drifted out of, you, you zoned out for 30 seconds and you came back and it's like you'd missed a week's karate class and you're about to get beaten up. So I'm sorry about that. Um, in future weeks, we're going to be more tied down to a particular text, particular theme. Um, next week we're not meeting Um, there won't be any Bible study next week but the week after that we'll be back and um, particularly the final word those of you who are joining us tonight uh, who wouldn't normally be with us or for the first time it is a distinct uh, privilege for all of us to have you here and glad you could come and we hope that uh, if this turns out to be something that can fit in your schedule we hope you'll join us again Um, let me lead us in prayer and then we'll conclude merciful father we confess with joy and uh, a sense somewhat of being certainly overwhelmed, outgunned really, that we are uh, delighted to be part of your picture for your self-revelation through time and space. How tempting it is, Father, to to think of ourselves as being at the centre and then we drop in on you occasionally and then once or twice in a day we bump into other people. But really to see ourselves as part of what you are doing, may that orient every aspect of our lives more faithfully, more sacrificially, with a resolute commitment to be those through whom you reveal more of your goodness and mercy. And as we start to look at some of the specifics of what you're doing in history in the coming weeks, we ask that you'd give us clarity about our place in the world and the church's place in your purposes. And we pray all this through the one whom you designed the universe to glorify, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Daniel, yes. Yeah, we do have a fellowship meal on Sunday. Pastor Neil, do you know of any other um, meetings or anything else that's in here between now and then? Uh, Okay, we can just check that. But if any are able to help with setting up for Sunday, that would be great. Thank you, Daniel.